the inaugural issue of the New Thinking Aloud magazine was just released on March 1st. You can download a free PDF copy from the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the life and work of the great novelist and lay Christian theologian C.S. Lewis. My guest is my good friend James Tunney, who is author of many books, including The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism, Empire of Scientism, the Dispiriting Conspiracy and Inevitable Tyranny of Scientocracy, Tech Bondage, Slavery of the Human Spirit, Human Entrance to Transhumanism, Machine Merger and the End of Humanity, and most recently, Plantation of the Automatons. James lives in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. It's a real pleasure once again to be with you. Hey, great to see you again, Jeff. I'm looking forward to our conversations. Thank you. Yeah, we're up to, I think it's 38 or so at this point, and I hope we do 38 more at least. Uh, me too. I, I appreciate each and every one, so I really enjoy our conversations. Well, today we'll be talking about C.S. Lewis, and I know from our previous conversations, his work is very dear to your heart. Yeah, it's funny, Jeff, that, uh, well, it's odd, it's kind of reversed for me, that I, I, I was never really into uh, the children's books, or the uh, same with Tolkien, so I, I didn't uh, I wasn't an automatic lover of, of, of that work. It just didn't come across my path. But it was later when I was looking at a proper analysis of the whole situation that, I, that I've been concerned with, that their work became more important to me. And C.S. Lewis is much more than a, ch a children's writer, for example. He's a man of many parts, as they say in Scotland. And it was the the rest of his work uh, put together made the sum of the part the sum greater than the parts. For example, we focused several times in the past on the novel That Hideous Strength. I actually have yet to read the novel, but I, I gather from our conversations and from peripheral reading that his, his argument is almost the same as, as yours. That is that the, the real evil in society doesn't come from, let's say, groups of criminals. It comes from, uh, this overarching uh, technological world in which we all find ourselves. Uh, yes, uh, it's very, very interesting because you can get snippets in various places about his general argument. And his argument uh, it goes back to a medieval context and a link between magic and science, which he constantly stressed. And he, he there are little throwaway statements where he suggests 
that the theory of evolution was really linked to Burma and alchemy before that. So, I mean, it, it's a different take on uh, some modern scientific theories. But he was very close in Oxford to scientists, and he knew what was going on. And as a don at Oxford, he would have been dining with, with people in these uh, disciplines, and he would have picked up a lot of information uh, associated with the, the certain establishment figures. So the real insight that he has was from what was happening on the ground. So unlike other theorists, for example, theorists that I like, like Jacques Ellul, uh, C.S. Lewis developed a specific critique related to a specific problem. So the problem was related to a very specific context, which I call imperial scientism. He talked about scientism, and he saw this as moving inevitably towards a scientocracy. But it was based on a, a, a long-held idea about rationality, about military power, about the, who we are, about the nature of, of humankind. And it, he saw it developing for, before his eyes. And interestingly, he, the, he wrote a, a book of poetry in 1919, uh, uh, Spirits and Bondage, and he published a narrative poem in 1926 called Dimer. And this is a, a dystopian poem, a narrative poem about a, a, a character who lives in a perfect city, which is a dystopia. And so at that stage, before some of the other great dystopians, he had perceived this dystopia coming into being. So this is, this is a generation before he comes to the children, children's books. So he was aware very, very early on, and a part of his personality was dedicated to be a kind of a knight, a, a, a spiritual knight. And he was looking in some senses, or he, he felt his destiny, in my view, was to combat a great adversary. So the adversary became Scientocracy, which, which developed out of a, a number of different strands, including a diabolical strand, which he, which he often emphasized. To my knowledge, he started out his adult career as an atheist. Uh, and it was through his very close relationship with J.R.R. Tolkien that uh, he was reintroduced to religion to such an extent that he's regarded as, uh, I, I guess the term would be a lay Christian theologian. That's right. That's, that's very accurate. So he starts off as a Church of Ireland Protestant in Ireland. He's an Irishman, of course, which is important, although he has... And he has uh, relations in the, in the Republic of Ireland, what's now the Republic of Ireland, and there's influences from Scotland. And his father's family were Welsh, and that, that's an important aspect because it gave a certain, I think, a sense associated with, with the love of language that came through his father and that great uh, love of the spoken words that uh, is a particularly Welsh uh, forte. So... Uh, in, in the Irish context, he's Church of Ireland, he's Protestant. And of course, it's quite polarized in Northern Ireland between Protestant and Catholic uh, through the, the history of the colonization of Ireland. So then he, he's, his, his mother died in 1908 and he's, he's sent off to a succession of boarding schools. And on the way, he becomes an atheist. 
Then he becomes interested in um, what people call the occult, although he's not a, a practicing occultist, but he's interested in the esoteric arts. And then he moves into things like, uh, he becomes an atheist uh, at various periods. And then that's later modified into something like uh, uh, philosophical idealism, pantheism. In the 20s, he's coming back to theism where he's beginning to intellectually accept it because his, he had to accept things axiomatically. His mother was a mathematician and he, part of him, uh, of, of his makeup, needed to understand things in a very axiomatic way. So he had to be convinced on reasonable grounds. And a, a series of events led to him uh, moving then from theism uh, in, into Christianity. And that was particularly associated with two other of the group, uh, which were, became known as the Inklings. Uh, and J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson were involved. And the, the turning point was his understanding the Christian story. And now remember that Tolkien and C.S. Lewis are experts in ancient languages, ancient texts, so they understand the difference between history and myth, and plenty of people in their circle understood this. But there is a turning point where they begin to, or they begin to debate the nature of Jesus Christ and there's two elements. Uh, Tolkien describes uh, or begins to describe as what would be described as a true myth, a myth that had actually happened. And that's critical. And that was reinforced by others who believed in the historicity of, G of Jesus Christ, uh, even though they were uh, some of some of the, uh, his colleagues that vindicated that weren't necessarily believers. But it's, it, it's true realizing that this, there had been an individual that Jesus Christ had existed, and it, w it was also mythic. There is a book on Christianity, uh, defending Christianity. I think it's called Cold Case Christianity, which argues that before Jesus Christ, there were many mythical figures, uh, God figures that, that that appeared on the earth, and they had certain characteristics. But and the maximum range of of characteristics associated with these figures was fifteen, and I think Jesus Christ had them all. So that this link and myth between myth and and fact is a unique one in in the Christian story. So that that convinced him he had to he had to be able to accept certain axioms before he could let himself fully believe. And then during the war he gave broadcast. Now be so people associated with with Narnia. But he, he was on the cover of uh, Time magazine in 1947, before the Narnia books were, were written, because he was a, a famous broadcaster, because he broadcast during the war discussions about the nature of Christianity after he'd become a Christian. So he's seen by some as the greatest, if you like, advocate or apologist, it's not a word I particularly like, uh, uh, for Christianity uh, and, and even for spirituality in many senses in the 20th century. He had... Hundreds of thousands on average that listened to it broadcast. He did about 30. And so therefore he was known in a way that someone like, I don't know, Jordan Peterson might be known today as someone who's talking about these issues. But he was focused on Christianity. And in particular, we can understand why Christianity was relevant because it's only when you begin to lose the foundation, say, of Judeo-Christianity that um, you begin to understand 
what's lost. And that was becoming relevant to people when they saw the alternatives for governance. You can choose between these Nazis. You can maybe if you don't want that, you can choose the Bolsheviks or you can choose something else. And the options didn't seem as appealing. So it made people look back to Christianity again. And he became known uh, for broadcasting in a very clear and coherent way uh, arguments about Christianity, which spoke to different denominations. It wasn't particularly, he called it mere Christianity, so he was looking at the, the fundamentals of Christianity that could unite people. And he certainly never sought to be divisive between the different groups of of um, uh, Christians, and therefore Catholics would be very taken with his views as well. Of course, Tolkien, who was something of a mentor to him was was a devout Catholic. So his introduction, reintroduction to Christianity, largely, I gather, was through Tolkien and his Catholicism. Yes, Tolkien uh, probably hoped uh, that he would become a a Catholic, but understood that there was, as he said, an Ulsterian motive that coming from Ulster, it would be very difficult for him culturally to uh, to, be, to become uh, a Catholic. Um, and it, it works both ways in many senses. They, they met about 1926 uh, when, when Tolkien was a professor at Oxford. And uh, it's important to remember as well, the C.S. Lewis, he... After he was in the, the First World War, like Tolkien had been as well, that he, he goes to study at Oxford and he studies a combination of subjects that gives him three firsts, uh, which include uh, philosophy, ancient history, uh, Greek and Latin and, and English. So he's, he, he's capable in a whole range of subjects and he starts off as a tutor in philosophy. So he's a, he, he's, he's a, he is a philosopher all his life and associated with that, as, as you, you suggested, a, a theologian. Uh, and, and he writes, uh, he, he writes well, very well about theology, although he, he, he doesn't focus his academic career on that. English is, and medieval English in particular is a focus of, of his study and particularly 16th century, uh, English, as well as studying Icelandic with, with uh, Tolkien. So, but the point is that it was to him that Tolkien came with one of his important poems. It was to him he came with the, to, to Lewis. He came to Lewis with The Hobbit as well. And uh, tr before a group uh, in particular uh, of the Inklings who, who, who met in Oxford, uh, he introduced The Lord of the Rings. And some of the other Inklings didn't particularly like uh, uh, the, the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien said that the Lord of the Rings wouldn't have come to fruition uh, without Lewis so this is uh, so in, in many ways Lewis is, is, is a mentor for uh, Tolkien and also another important inkling is Owen Barfield now Owen Barfield was actually the first one to do to publish a children's book that was the Silver Trumpet in 1926 and Barfield was influenced by Steiner and this uh, this influence of Rudolf Steiner came, comes into the group. But the book, The Silver Trumpet, refers back to, to God speaking to Moses and calling with a spiritual, or, or a spiritual instrument being the silver trumpet. So, um, whereas Barfield starts off with, he was a lawyer, but he was very interested in philosophy, he starts off with a children's story and then moves on to saving the appearances and philosophy. Uh, it's the other way around for C.S. Lewis. He kind of starts off with some heavy, heavy, 
works of scholarship that he had to for his career and moves on later to Narnia and in between during this uh, the second world war period he did his science fiction trilogy which was important uh, and the last one it was was that book that hideous strength and i think it's it's well it's it's head and shoulders above most of his work well i gather a lot of more conservative christians uh, we're not enthusiastic about uh, Lewis's theology. I, I know, for example, people have suggested that the lion character in the Narnia series, Aslan, is actually a, a symbolic representation of Jesus Christ, who sacrifices his life for the benefit of, of other people. And I, I guess that maybe rubs some people the wrong way. Yeah, it's very interesting. Generally, he's accepted by uh, and celebrated and an important figure for many, uh, I'd say, moderate Christians. Uh, if you read some of the more ex extreme versions, they begin to criticize him for his lifestyle. They begin to criticize him for his use of pagan stories, and they question him. But he's very popular across the middle ground of, of Christianity, extremely popular, because he also provides a... a, a a, a way to teach Christianity in a world which is very hostile to it. Uh, and the figure of Aslan is clearly a reference to uh, Jesus Christ in a different world. He, he said he was trying to uh, imagine this figure in a different world. And uh, if you th there's various theories about the origin of uh, Aslan. One, one little point I, I, I would refer to, it's obscured in this, is the link between, or the affinity between uh, C.S. Lewis and early Celtic Christianity. And if we go back to the book of Kells, the lion figure is there. It represents Mark in many senses, but the lion figure is throughout a lot of the early Christian uh, Christian text. And there was a story associating uh, the lion figure with, with Jesus and the resurrection. And also, uh, the what the an important thing that C.S. Lewis did and Tolkien, uh, which was consistent with what the early Celtic Christians did, was they integrated paganism uh, and Christianity because they saw paganism as an anticipation, or the good elements, as an anticipation of Christianity. So they sought to draw them together, and that was the, the success uh, of the Catholic Church. So in that sense, the uh, the link between Aslan and the sun god is a, is a very obvious one and he was, C.S. Lewis was, was attracted to figures like Baldur and Lu in the Celtic uh, scenario and Sol Invictus so he saw the, these as prefigurate, mythic prefigurations uh, of Christ so there was, no, there was no inconsistency there so there's no question about that re uh, relationship and the, the series of books the Chronicles of Narnia derives its name apparently from a town in Italy, and the town is Narni. And the significance of this, and it's a clue, I think, to his own thinking, is that it's halfway between Rome and Assisi. Now, one element uh, associated with C.S. Lewis is his love of animals. Uh, he loves animals. He, he's not popular in, in Oxford because he fights with the scientists over their vivisectionism. He's against this uh, cruelty to animals and experiments on live animals, uh, and, and that doesn't make him popular with his scientific friends who can't understand uh, who can't understand this. Uh, he 
from the time he was young, as well as seeing himself as a knight, he's he has an imaginary world, an animal land, box, and he he called it. So this this is another. Uh, you talked about it in one of your conversations about shamanism as a shamanistic feature, this uh, terianthropic connection, this link between anthropomorphism uh, and the attribution of human characteristics to animals and their link with the gods, which we see in the in the cave paintings uh, in Europe. So he was always interested in a mythic way about animals. And then the animals and his figures talk to us. He in, they endear they endear us. He show he thinks we have a special relationship to to, to uh, animals and that we should uh, we we should respect them. So that that aspect is another important reason why he he uses figures like Aslan as well. The project of the Inklings in general was one of, I guess I would phrase it as re-enchantment of the world, going back to ancient literature to a time when people already saw the world as a magical place. Uh, that's right. Uh, if we look, that, that certainly comes true in Tolkien and Lewis, it comes true in relation to Owen Barfield and his, his idea of, of recapturing the imagination and, and moving to a, a sense of final participation, as he called it, recovering something that has lost. And it's there in relation to Charles Williams, who was also involved in magic, who, who came to Oxford in the 30s and was significant and forms a connection, therefore, with London. Uh, and uh, of Yeats was a big influence on C.S. Lewis. And Yeats as well, if we go back in the 18, 1890s, had a circle around him in the old Cheshire Cheese pub in, on the Strand. And, and people, even Oscar Wilde and that would have come into that. But it was a link between magic and literature. So this, this idea of the re-enchantment, as you said, was informed in particular by a stream that goes through Yeats back to William Blake and back to Swedenborg and others. Uh, and in particular for this group, many of them had been in the First World War. They saw the consequences of what Tolkien called the machine. So the machine wasn't anything specific. It was a, a general impact of concatenation of technology coming together. And they were obviously, despite the fact that, that, that C.S. Lewis wasn't a pacifist, but he saw what the destructive nature of this technology could do. So in, in some ways, they were reacting against that. But in particular, what they were, they were the purpose of the, there was a, a use of the enchantment, as Bruno Beetleheim might say, or there was a purpose to the enchantment. The, uh, there's, and there's a number of different levels to this. Uh, in one sense, there was a, a kind of belief that the whole apparatus of the imagination was being taken away. And, and this is, this is not hard to believe when you're in, places like Oxford and Cambridge that used to be owned, used to be monasteries, but of course during the Reformation they took all the images out, they took all the, 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 the monastic tradition out and replaced it. So uh, this this had happened before, an assault on, 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 the, uh, on the images, if you like, on the iconography of the society, which I'm not sure that Britain has ever re recovered from uh, in some way. So if we go back to the idea of the memory palace in, in in the Renaissance magicians and Bruno and all, all these uh, chaps, there was an idea that uh, you had to create something to protect yourself against outside forces. So that was certainly there. And in particular, having identified early on this trend uh, from 
it was partly related to, to, to uh, Fabian, the Fabian Society, but it mutated. And, and H.G. Wells is the big figure. So he becomes the real, the, the real catalyst for this, this, this stream that, that in particular Lewis is opposing, but the others are, are, are opposing as well, not as directly as Lewis. There was a, there's an essay in 1906 called The Story, uh, the, a, story a book, The Story of the Amulet, by Edith Nesbitt, which which C.S. Lewis had read, and this was a fantasy story that would have impacted on him about children using a magic charm to travel through time. But they travel to the future, and the, the hero in the future was Wells. They mentioned Wells as the hero of the Dark Ages. So opposing that, another very interesting story from 1909 was by E.M. Foster uh, called the Forster called the uh, the machine stops, and this anticipated a society where we were living on the ground and communicating by some internet, effectively, uh, which was the machine. So he was opposing well. So this opposition had perhaps started with people like E. M. Forster, and then that was continued. Uh, that was probably in the mind of Lewis, and he developed that. And, and when we had this this efflorescence. Uh, that's not a good word in, in the case of, of these guys. When you had in the 1920s, you had uh, Wells and uh, Haldane and Bernal and Lord or the Earl Birkenhead and people that were seeing the scientific future and were they remember in Ireland that had been the they were negotiating with the former terrorists uh, in 1921 and I, I think at that stage they began some of these people began to say the empire has to be different and that was a transformation to science and, and, and the idea that they would run the world with science instead because if they had if they had a whole lot of guerrilla wars in, in, in the empire they wouldn't be able to manage it so in the 20s uh, they, they understood that technology was getting stronger they, were, they began to anticipate how big bombs could be H.G. Wells had anticipated the atomic bomb so uh, people like Haldane were, they were imagining the great scientific future. Bernal was as well. Haldane was writing articles explaining why chemical warfare was justified and humane and giving out about the pacifists who didn't want to facilitate chemical warfare. I mean, it's grim stuff as well as eugenics. Eugenics was, was inherent in it. And uh, C.S. Lewis began to oppose it early on. Others weren't as focused on that at, uh, at the same time. He continued to be. But their effort was an effort to recover. And that was a word that, that, uh, that Tolkien used in his famous lectures in St. Andrews in 1939 that became on fairy stories. They were building on work that people like uh, G.K. Chesterton had written about, about, about the importance of Elfland and the imagination. And this also referred back to George MacDonald, who was one of the big influences on this group, who wrote about fairy stories, who came from Scotland and was informed by that Celtic tradition and probably people like Robert Kirk and, and, and the Secret Commonwealth. So through that influence, there was a stream which emphasized the other world as a necessary protection. And also, if you think in terms for Tolkien, Tolkien and, and Lewis, they, they, they talked about secondary creation. So this was a humans reflecting the divine creation. So in many senses, what Tolkien is doing through his idea of uh, mythopoesis is creating another world that reflects his Catholicism. 
So really, all the elements of Catholicism are in the series, from the Cimmerillion through the uh, Lords of the Rings, uh, three, uh, three volumes. And he has, if we go back in that, a a a, a, a supreme god and angels and and a whole uh, cosmogony and, and theology, if you like, like, like behind it. So they did see themselves, and this is this is the key point. Sorry for going on so long, but the key point is, I believe they were a kind of counter-revolutionary force in the realm of consciousness to try and utilize the imaginal, the imagination, as a protective, uh, a protective force against the development of the machine that they saw emerging as a totalizing force that would not just destroy humans, but would destroy nature as well and Tolkien's beloved trees. So, yes. I think it's very interesting that H.G. Wells became sort of the symbolic uh, representation of this empire of scientism, as as you've described it. Uh, really, uh, I guess one might even think of it as a, a fascist empire in which uh, scientists ran the world, but just as, as cruelly as uh, the group of dictators that emerged in the 1930s. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's brutal. The, 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 the lack of compassion behind some of these writings is breathtaking. They, they really had no value for human life. Many of them, like Haldane, was, was a communist. We talked about Bernal before. Uh, and H.G. Wells, he fell out with the, the kind of Fabians. He wasn't too impressed with them. He thought Marx was a bit soft. He thought Marxism was a bit a bit soft because there wasn't enough planning in it. So that's why a lot of these figures thought that Stalin was a fantastic scientific manager, even after he died. And I mean, it's, it's quite frightening. Um, and, and but there's no there's no value of of human life. There's no value for animal life, and there's no value for 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 nature in many senses. And, and certainly, uh, there is a strand that goes back to, to Francis Bacon that C.S. Lewis uh, identifies uh, uh, as well. But the, the Nazis would have, I, I think uh, they would have been very uh, happy with a lot of the articles that this group wrote. So uh, uh, one of the complaints that Haldane had against C.S. Lewis uh, he, after he had read that hideous strength was that he thought that the scientists were a bit fascist, whereas really uh, they they would come from the opposite political persuasion. He didn't see the any any irony in that. And really, what what C.S. Lewis was emphasising was this totalising worldview, this totalitarian view. It doesn't really matter whether it's left or right. If when you when you get into a situation where there is no commitment to human life. Uh, or, or nature, and it's driven by this ultra-materialist, collectivist, uh, ideological belief in scientific materialism. Uh, and it's he saw that. And, and so I think, uh, in many ways, he's not necessarily a prophet. He's an adversary. He's a, he's a, a spiritual nemesis and an actual nemesis of, of this movement. And he will be regarded. One of his, probably his greatest contribution will be in the future, this recognition of this particular policy and, and his pure focus on that. He also developed it in The Abolition of Man in 1943 and in another essay in 1958 
called Willing Slaves of the Welfare State. So he was consistent in his commitment to fight this particular strand of what I call imperial scientism. He certainly uh, talked about scientism a lot and scientocracy, which he, he referred to in his letters. So that the uh, the future that others had seen, uh, he saw in its comprehensive nature that it would be a, scient- a scientocracy. And the last point on this, there is a, a, a Catholic uh, exorcist called uh, Ripperger, I think it's his name, Chad uh, Ripperger. And he, in an interesting talk that I heard, was talking about this idea of a, of a nemesis on the spiritual plane. So he said, for example, that when he's doing exorcisms, or uh, so he's engaging in the spiritual plane, and he's a very experienced exorcist, that Joan of Arc, Joan of Arc is on the spiritual plane a nemesis to people who commit treachery. Uh, because of the particular nature of her experience. So although it might, a particular person might be a saint for a particular reason, on the spiritual plane, they have a particular function. Now, I see C.S. Lewis as the nemesis, and he, pro- he saw himself, he's, I'm sure he saw himself as a spiritual knight in the vein almost of, of, of St. George or, or St. Michael or whatever, They're, hence the dragons and the, the, the series of things he was concerned. He had, from the time he was small, he had dreams about insects, machines, and there's always an adversary there who's, who becomes Satan, or, 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 and he writes the screw tape letters about demons, and, and he called Haldane's plans diabolical. So he saw the spiritual darkness was related to this particular focus on materialism. He wasn't against machines or technology, but he believed that these people were trying to become sorcerers, they were trying to become dark magicians uh, through technology. And that's 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 continued through Arthur C. Clarke, who we also... Now, I know that you, you asked a question about Arthur C. Clarke. He sent a letter to Arthur C. Clarke, and he said that if Arthur, they were communicating, and he suggested that Arthur C. Clarke, who was in this, was in this line of, of, of people, that his f- future would make the, if it came true, would make the humans a cancer on the universe. It was a very, a very deeply held views, uh, views for him. And I noticed that Elon Musk recently said, or referred back to that speech we've talked about by Arthur C. Clarke, and, uh, where he, he foresees the future of merger of man and machine. He wasn't being prescient about that as Elon Musk taught. He was describing the agenda that was there from much earlier on. He's, it's only pre-science. It was the scientific agenda that he was merely describing uh, as opposed to anticipating. What I'm gathering from what you are suggesting is that this idea of the human merging with the machine that seems to be something of a goal for transhumanists and other other groups of people, the singularity university crowd, for example, it, it makes me wonder whether they're uh, so enraptured about this idea of, of merging their consciousness with some kind of silicon-based technology that it, it's because they're uncomfortable with the, I imagine if you talk to them, they would call it the rising tide of superstition, but they're uncomfortable with this this whole realm of the irrational, the magical, the even the mystical side of nature. Uh, yes and no. I mean, funny, uh, George Orwell reviewed 
reviewed the uh, uh, that hideous strength, and he said, "Yeah, I could, I could see this. You know, it could happen in the future." But he didn't like the book because of all the supernatural stuff. Because of course Orwell was a materialist, and he, he just had the people get it wrong. You have to ask yourself, well, what is this vision? Uh, what is the vision of the world presented by uh, by some of these critics? So that element is is clearly there. There is a, a devastating left side men- mentality in some of them. But at the same time, and this is this is what uh, C.S. Lewis presents in, in that hideous strength. At the same time. There is also an occult dimension. It's a dark, sorceress element. So while some of the people are rejecting, are apparently rejecting spirituality and mysticism, they're rejecting, if you like, a white magic approach, uh, while as retaining a deep belief in in a sorceress uh, approach. And we can see that even in Arthur C. Clarke, he said this, uh, he can't distinguish between magic and, uh, and high technology. And this is a, a connection that goes back, as we know, uh, to Bacon. So there's a curious split. There's one group of people who are just pure materialists, and that's, that's a, so, an issue of neuroplasticity, and they see the world from a very left-brain uh, perspective. Uh, and they, they cannot, in, in the way that uh, in McGilchrist explains they're blinded to the other, the right uh, the right brain uh, approaches uh, and that is why a lot of these figures Chesterton uh, MacDonald C.S. Lewis uh, Barfield all the inklings they're emphasizing a kind of right brained approach the need to uh, to love the humanities engage in the humanities engage in literature because that's associated with uh, with expansion of human consciousness and in that the key now, now remember c.s lewis knew some of these figures so there's a clear implication uh that in in, in that hideous hideous strength in the form he's hiding his information if you like in, in in the context of a fairy story for adults but there's a clear link with the occult extraterrestrials satanism in a way that when you have had conversations with charles upton that would go together that 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 nexus that the sees a connection it's not saying they're all that uh, but there is that link the idea that some of the dark magicians want to uh, form connections with dark forces and the other one from Ephesians, you know we wrestle not with flesh and blood but with principalities the idea associate with steiner that would have come true that the, we were encountering on the earth a battle from the heavens that had come into the mortal uh, the mortal domain so he's 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 totally consistent with what steiner was saying about these evil forces that were manifesting itself because of if you like uh, the influence of people that wanted that in the pursuit of power and associated with that is this god or the desire to be gods to reject in the abolition of man the last point he doesn't focus on christianity he doesn't say it's all about christianity he's a perennialist in many senses in fact he the highest principle he calls the tao and he said that all the major traditions have the same principles at base the tao and the idea is that you adhere to the tao uh, but the sorcerers want to control it through their will they want to impose their will I suppose, like Alistair Crowley talks about the will and uh, being the essence of magic, it's, it, it's that idea. But in that, 
That's why they want to dominate. And on the transhumanist issue, the transhumanists don't want you to live forever. I'm sorry to break it. They don't want immortality <laughs> for every, everyone. Uh, this, this is, they don't want to improve everyone's, everyone's lifestyle. That's clearly not what the agenda is. They want for an elite group to be able to extend their life, and mainly because they, they do fear death. And for the materialists, uh, they will believe that it's over. If you're into the occult, you don't want to be going down below. That's what happens in Dr. Faustus. You, 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 don't want to, you don't want your life to be short because you know where you're going afterwards. You've made the pact with the, with the devil. So for a number of reasons, you, one might want to uh, extend their life. But the crucial thing that people have to get into their heads about transhumanism is that it's going to be network transhumanism. You won't have a choice that there will be, you will be linked to this system through, uh, through endovascular and uh, endosymbiosis, true connection. You'll be forced to. True dependence. We're getting made dependent on these systems. Now we'll have digital currency coming in. We won't be able to do anything without, without being linked. And it's a short step to being linked forcibly. And once that happens, uh, there won't be any going back from it. So, so, so the, uh, the, it's a control mechanism. The, 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 the drivers of the military industrial complex, as they always have been, and particular individuals pers- or, or promote that. But the objective is not about uh, really deep philosophical individual notions behind it. It's a control system. And network transhumanism is the ideal way to control people on a mass scale if you want global governance. I'm reminded of, um, and I haven't shared this with you before, the work of uh, a a woman I hope to interview before too long. Her name is Angela Brown Miller. And and she writes about the afterlife and suggests that when you're in the afterlife, there are these beings – of various kinds, and they would like nothing more than to absorb your consciousness so that you become part of their larger consciousness. And that part of the struggle of of being in the afterlife is, are you going to preserve your individual autonomy? And uh, I think you often use the word... Sovereignty. Sovereignty. Sovereignty, yes. Individual sovereignty. Or are you going to get swallowed up by some larger entity? Maybe it's a spiritual entity. Maybe it's like Jesus or uh, Joan of Arc. Uh, But it might be some dark entity. Or are you going to maintain your own individual sovereignty? And I'm gathering from our discussion that uh, if Angela's uh, vision is correct, it's not so different on this side of the veil. There's no difference, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, that really, if you look at uh, what ideologies seek to do, if you look at what dark forces seek to do, diabolical forces or uh, deep addictions, uh, the effect they have on people, or uh, or going back to Wilson von Dusen as well and, and some more recent thinkers, uh, that they're all about possession. That, And the, the, the point is, that they want to possess something which is valuable. And the, the valuable thing is your spiritual consciousness. And again, we could rationalize that in terms of Lurianic Kabbalah as, as the divine spark or some reflection of divinity in us, the kind of a jewel, if you like, that reflects the totality like Indra's net. 
that we have that. That is us. That is our spiritual consciousness. It's light. Light was a very important element for for C.S. Lewis. Uh, and the idea that we are absorbed uh, is, a, is a fond notion for a lot of people. You know, we, we go back and we're a drop. Of, uh, I know Houston Smith said that. Um, I don't, don't see it in the same way, Jeff. I, I, I believe that we maintain our, uh, our individuality uh, on, until a kind of end scenario, but there's a, lot, there's a long way to go uh, before that. And that the objective of maintaining our individuality is important. And that is why one cannot give one's uh, being up to a, uh, another being, uh, to, to an ideology, an ideology whereby you don't exercise your individual uh, free will, which is the essence of this uh, consciousness. And uh, in some ways, what Steiner and that is saying is that there is a descent of the astral plane into the mundane, or there is a there is a more permeability be, between it, so that some people are more in contact with the dark forces, and that there's uh, there's more movement between them. So uh, the uh, the battle in some, or when we when in the Buddhist context, or when you're going to the Bardo plane and that, there are certainly projections from one's own mind, but there are also the, the suggestions of a whole range of beings. And you were talking about guardians of the threshold as well. There are, uh, this guardian idea uh, appears in a number of contexts. I agree with you what you're saying, that largely it's uh, the self-reflections, but there are also ontologically other beings that, that, that are there in different contexts. And it also poses a question, I know it's not it doesn't seem to be popular to, 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 to make any critical points about psychedelics, Jeffrey, because you've got loads of people defending them. And good luck to everyone we've talked about before, and good luck to, uh, to people that, that get benefit from them. I know about the studies and that. That having been said, sometimes we have to be careful that if we're, if we're venturing into domains of which we don't understand, that we may also be subjecting ourselves to uh, communication with beings in that dimension, dimension that may have implications in the future. We don't know. Uh, so, for example, if we go down to Mexico or into some into some cafe down there where the local uh, cartel is meeting, we're not going to uh, go up and interfere interfere with their meal and and start uh, making making play or, or fun talk with them because we know there might be consequences. But we, we'll, we're willing to do that in the spiritual world, to, to engage with beings that we don't know without having adequately protected ourselves. So there, are, there, are, there is an issue there for me uh, that, that, that may arise, uh, arise when a person's going to the next dimension and they meet one of the, the, the group of mechanical elves and they said, but you promised you were coming with, with us in, when you had your trip. Uh, but but you, you understand the point I'm making. So I, I, I think... I think there is a continuity. What the spiritual masters are saying is, do your spiritual work now. Prepare your spiritual being now. Get rid of stuff that is not relevant now. Be who your best self, as you say, uh, which is which is very correct. Be your best self now. And, and being your best self as well in the spiritual sense applies in the next dimension. I and mean, that's what all the spiritual leaders say. And, and the enlightening as well, the removing of things that you... You don't want uh, uh, to carry. But certainly, uh, another example that, that's worth mentioning is that it ties into Aslan as well. 
that Charles Williams, who was, who was interested in magic, wrote some amazing books about the afterlife and, the, and these ideas. And The Place of the Lion was one he wrote in 1931, which may have influenced C.S. Lewis. And this is about uh, archetypes from the realm of forms, uh, and in particular a lion, I think, coming into this plane. So this idea of the archetypes coming into the plane. And this is seeing in, in that hideous strength where one of the solutions involves a reapparition of Merlin uh, to help in the struggle against the, the, the evil scientists. Now, that's a deeper idea. The implication is that, to use the word of Tolkien in the fairy tales or fairy stories, that we're engaging or they're engaging in an act of recovery of from the human imagination and human mythology and human legendarium of figures that could be lost, but that are necessary for us in archetypal context for inspiration and for models at various times. And that there's no inconsistency with the coexistence of figures like Merlin, although he was in the uh, associated with the Christian era as well, but of some of these ancient figures, ancient gods even, and Christianity. And so this is a, an innovative aspect of their thinking. So they're quite integrated. They're not being very exclusivist. They can dialogue with other different uh, traditions and, and exhibit some of that syncretist or uh, perennial uh, philosophy because they believe we need to. And some traditionalists say that as well. I say it, that we're going to have to draw on a whole range of different wells uh, together to cooperate, to deal with the hubris that's associated with this development of technology and the power that it, it possesses to destroy us, the planet, animals, uh, and life. Well, it's a, an interesting equation that you're making, that this desire to control, whether it's through technology or through various forms of, of mind control, is ultimately the same impulse. I, I think it, I think it is. I, I think it's, it's, it's the essence, um, as in MKUltra, if you like, mind control, um, the desire to dominate the imperial, uh, the imperial impulse, the colonial impulse. It's associated with power. It's associated with a prizing of material things. It's associated with a desire, an immediate desire for satis satisfaction of basic, of basic uh, impulses. And it's set against a vision that C.S. Lewis puts forward. He describes, which is important in his book, The Four Loves, he describes different types of love. Because we talk about love and people say, oh, we need is love. But they don't actually say what they mean by that. And, and to a large extent, I think the idea of love in any traditional sense, it's being corrupted in, in many ways by commercialization, entertainment. You know, love is something that you look for on a Saturday night, uh, which is different from the the traditions. And he describes the, the Greek ideas uh, of uh, storge and eros and philia and agape from uh, affection uh, and familiarity to erotic love to agape, which is a love beyond the uh, the immediate needs. It's non-transactional and it's divinely inspired and it's related to the divine. And he makes a very important point about that. He said that if 
for example, in relationships, you focus on secondary things like secondary desires as opposed to a higher love. You will you may gain the object, but you will lose it because you have to to secure the highest things. You have to be motivated by an unselfishness in order even to obtain the secondary things. So first things first, he said in that context. And he was a very unselfish, noble, honorable man. He was very charitable. He gave away a lot of his wealth, a lot of the, the, the royalties from, from his work. Barfield helped him through legal organizations to give money to charity. He was very noble, uh, very kind, very helpful, uh, very charitable uh, in these contexts. So so he, he practiced uh, what he preached. He had a deep belief in this sense for himself of a kind of noble quest. Uh, it, it, it was critical for him uh, to to marry his behavior with his the idea of himself as a kind of spiritual knight who had to oppose intellectually uh, with the sword of discernment, if you like, that he'd got partly from his mother, partly from William Kirkpatrick, who was his private tutor, who really focused his mind on how to think and he, he, he it honed his thinking into a very sharp, axiomatic, uh, convincing way, uh, which was without super, uh, superfluity. Uh, so that was a kind of a, 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 it was a kind of sword for him in, in the battle. His, he had he had his shield from his his spiritual uh, experiences and and his spiritual practices, uh, prayer. He talked about all the the fundamentals there. He had little contact with Evelyn Underhill. He would have had a, con a contact, uh, a secondary contact, if you like, through Charles Williams from that circle. So uh, he was really uh, in, embedded uh, in, in a broader movement and sought to bring those values together. But, but for me, that uh, the, the supreme application is in that adversarial nature, the nemesis towards technology. And this is a thing that I, I see that some people are awakening to this, but I regard this as one of the great failures of the Christian institutions and all the religious institutions, that they haven't taken this seriously. And now I know there's there's people like Romano Gardini in the Catholic Church that talked about, oh, we have, of course, the Hannah Arendt and Gunther Anders and William Stern. We have Jacques Ellul and Charbonneau in France. And we had a range of people that, that see, saw these issues. But the religious institutions haven't realized that this is the greatest existential threat to the future of humanity. The possibility that technologically we could have a spiritual amputation. And as in that film, uh, with um, Al Pacino, uh, he says there's nothing worse than a an amputated spirit uh, in, in scent of a woman. It's, it's a good line, uh, despite the physical things, nothing worse than an amputated spirit. We're at a stage where technologically the ability to intervene in the body on a mass scale with the precedence of, of mass medication, which are going to be established more and more on a global level to the World Health Organization and through the uh, promotion of pharmaceutical companies. The precedent is there to establish mass control. And this is this threatens the uh, existence of individual sovereignty 
And they've nearly all failed on that, although Pope Francis has made some comments about technocracy. Uh, the Dalai Lama is, is very on board with a lot of scientific developments. I think they have been insufficiently uh, critical of the uh, interaction of a range of forces, the convergence of technology, particularly through networks that have, uh, has evolved from the imperial context. And they failed in that context. So uh, it doesn't matter what... If a person comes from some strange spiritual sect that I haven't I, I haven't met before, but that they understand some of these issues, I would trust them more than a person who has read all the theology in, in Christianity or Judaism, but doesn't understand some of these big issues because they're an existential threat to us. C.S. Lewis, if I remember correctly, died around 1965. Do you know... Uh, I mean, he had witnessed so much social change having been born in the 19th century. Uh, was he optimistic at the time of his death? Do you have any idea? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, some of his later work was very interesting, and some say the best work came late. Like he has a book called uh, Till We Have Faces, which is a, a remaking of the Greek legends about Cupid and Psyche and Orpheus. Um he died, of of course, on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, the same day as Kennedy, uh, the same day as Aldous Huxley, and there's even an Irish writer, um, Patrick McGill, that died on the same day. It was it's quite it's quite re remarkable, but um, he, I his, I, I don't know if optim optimism is the right word, but the implication from the work of the Inklings is quite clear, in my view, on, on, on a different reading. They may, might not have put it this way. But the word that uh, Tolkien used was EU catastrophe. That's not a political statement about the EU. It's a, it's a word to, to, to show that at the end of the story, there would be a happy ending. Now, according to studies of stories in the last few hundred years, there is an argument that the happy ending has disappeared uh, in, in recent decades and centuries, in a way that in all stories, in all times, there's this optimistic ending to stories, and that has changed uh, in recent decades and in recent centuries, reflecting some deeper lack of faith in our own uh, and, and, and deeper manipulation, because stories are, are, are used propagandistically. The implication of all these stories from Tolkien... Uh, and Lewis is that good does triumph o o over evil because good is creative, and this is an, a, an important element. It's creative, and often the fallen angels are not creative. Uh, compassion is a creative force, and destruction is, is obviously not. So once the force, and he did use the force in, in an earlier context, anticipating perhaps the kind of structure of uh, of Star Wars a little bit. Uh, I, I would also see the influence of, of of his story in The Dark Crystal by Jim Henson, which was a, really an English story. It was it was largely done in 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 uh, England and it's about these same uh, issues. But the implication is that they can never triumph over people that are committed. They may suffer. Uh, the people m may endure extreme suffering. He explains why pain is necessary in the world. He, he doesn't believe that you avoid pain. He believes 
he believes that it's in in a book he wrote the problem of pain he explains the philosophy of pain he he, he did write as well in a book called surprise of joy a kind of half autobiography and he did a, a, write a book about his experience with his wife uh, joy uh, uh, D- david man uh, gresham uh, who had cancer they were they were happy for a few years and he had cancer and died and that, that was the basis of the film shadowlands uh, so he, he he believed that this was a fundamental part of human nature but that the physical issues were not the spiritual issues that the commitment to spiritual or to the divine force and spiritual evolution uh was the was the the, the promise if you like of, of eternal life but also of success it, it, but so in both cases they see a very grim uh, unfolding and in many senses that grim unfolding is a consequence of the lack of our own attendance to these matters but i think that fundamentally uh, both are optimistic about those uh, about those forces and there is a sense as you see in narnia that the good forces eventually come when you're desperate and also there is an idea that and this is an idea we've talked about before once you put yourself on the correct path the helpers will come at appropriate times and that uh, victory will be snatched from the jaws of defeat, uh, and that there will be triumph in the end, although there may be a big price to pay. But if you fall physically in an honourable fight, uh, uh, being chivalrous, being uh, adhering to codes of honour, adhering to compassion, uh, exemplifying the values that were there in the, in the pre-Christian era, the, of courage that were there in the Christian era, if you're committed to them, well, then it, it won't matter that there is a structural as embodied, for example, by the white witch, the kind of heartless figure uh, who was kind of based on Lilith going uh, back to uh, Jewish stories about the, the first wife of Adam, that this, this figure and these figures are there. And in some senses as well, he does emphasize that idea a lot of people believe that it's necessary for our de- development that this complementary force pushes us to, to a higher level. So we do have that idea from Myers of uh, the necessity that we move out of the chrysalis, we move out uh, of the insect state to, to, to a, uh, a higher level. So um, I, I think he was, always, he was always optimistic. After he'd been in the First World War and what he had seen, I don't think... Uh, there was going to be uh, much more horror to come his way uh, then. And with his spiritual belief, as with Tolkien, uh, the whole point for many of them is that this was necessary for the EU daemonia, the good spirits. So the end objective of the Tao is this flourishing that you've talked about before with uh, Stefan Schwartz and that. That this is the objective of all of all beings uh, and that once you're focused on that and once you're really committed to that and really believe that that whatever happens tragedy can happen it's in the nature of the world but your job is to keep focused on that and to persist to carry on like the characters 
in the novels, to forgive people where necessary, to understand that there will be treachery and there will be opposition and there will be failures and there will be defeats and there will be uh, horrible things, beings that we will encounter, but that the the good forces will get their due in the end and they will be helped by intervention. So consistent with the mystical idea, whether it's Aslan or interferences in Tolkien, uh, in the there is interferences from the angelic beings, often through figures that have some sense or some connection uh, with the higher orders. Uh, and there, uh, that's where the, the, the Gandalf figure, uh, etc., comes in. The light, like the hermit, the classic archetype. Um, uh, these, these mythic figures keep telling us things. There's things to learn from them. If we look back, we can get models. And also, an, uh, another important point is I think the final point on that is that I think they suggest that some of these figures appear again or reappear at particular times because they're particularly necessary. So Merlin might be necessary to re-enchant, as, as you've indicated, the, the, the disenchantment that is happening. Or certain figures might be necessary to help with a dispiriting. Uh, and what what Lewis and Tolkien and Barfield and that uh, is doing, and the other people around them, there was, uh, Dyson and his brother, of course, C.S. Lewis had a uh, Warren Lewis, which he was close to for all all his life. Warney, they were uh, they were discussing ways, really, in my view, to maximise the animosphere, to have a, a very healthy uh, range of alternative views, perspectives worlds that could be drawn on a, a true mythopoesis, true creation, that people could rely on when they needed to and apply. And in all of them, there is an idea that there is good and there is bad. Uh, it, it's dualistic in that sense. It, it, it's not simple, uh, but really there is an optimum path that we should take for spiritual evolution individually and collectively. And, and uh, although it's not simple... Although people do wrong at different times, there's, there's forgiveness and moving on to the next level. Well, James Tunney, what a wonderful exposition. I'm delighted that we've had this time to talk about a very seminal figure in 20th century culture. Before we conclude our interview, do you have any final thoughts to share? Uh, no, just the, the point that uh, you have often suggested that we need to uh, survey or understand or comprehend all these different non-materialist uh, dimensions, uh, ultra-material or beyond perhaps rather than uh, ultra-materialist dimensions that we need to understand and understand the relationship between them. Because, for example, Tolkien's fairy world is different from McDonald's, it's different from Robert Kirk's. There's different questions about the ontology, whether these beings exist, what they mean, what the purpose is. They're different from William Blake's view. For example, uh, it may be that people like William Blake were actually creating a place in their imaginative world that does exist independently, ontologically. I have a sense of that sometimes, that there's different levels to this, that at least we should begin to... Uh, have a, have some signposts to be able to distinguish different things and always to understand that they all emphasize the power of the imagination, the power 
of strange things. He also wrote a book on miracles, this openness to the supernatural, the openness to the paranormal. These are ordinary things that have always existed, that are part of our nature. And I suppose as they and the Inklings and others, I believe, were motivated by a desire to be a counterforce to that stultifying, deadly, uh, literally dead, deadly force, I think your work as well has has been motivated by a similar desire to emphasize and point to uh, the si- uh, the signs of the other world as necessary antidote. It doesn't always have to directly address the issues, but the implication is that there has to be an alternative. And they saw in their creation that it you didn't have to necessarily approach the issue directly, that it was better in some senses to develop the other realms and to, to respect the other realms and the value would come from that space. And I think, I think so your work it fits into the, the same vein that they sought to do uh, and it's complementary to that effort and the crucibles from the, from the, eagle, uh, the eagle and child in, in, in Oxford and that crucible, that kind of Camelot of, of production of consciousness so so um I, I think your work is important in that context too thank you yeah well it's a pleasure to be with you once again obviously you've raised many issues that uh, we'll talk about in future conversations james thank you so much for being with me today thank you again thank you and for those of you listening or watching thank you for being with us Thank you.